The patient we're going to talk about today is a 63-year-old man who had an elevated PSA but no nodules. Hello, and thank you for coming back to the AUA University podcast series. Today's topic will be Court is in Session, a moot court back for a second year in AUA 2017. Topics related to the legal implications of real-life urological issues will be tried before this court. These cases have some videos and images that you will not be able to see, and you can see the full videos at AUA2017.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Courts in Session. It's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Vijay Vimakumakanda. Uh, Dr. Vimakanda is someone who plays both sides of the streets. She's an MD and a JD, so she's well-versed both with what physicians face as well as the legal implications of what unfortunately sometimes occurs. I'd like to acknowledge our two guests, uh, Glenn Doff and John Cassidy. Glenn is a practicing attorney from New York, and John is a practicing attorney from Boston. We greatly appreciate the, uh, the great amount of time that they've invested in preparing these cases for us, and we thank them for their insight into the sessions today. With no further ado, I'll turn it over to Dr. Scott Swanson from the Board of Directors who will introduce the first case. Thank you, Manoj. Uh, the first case is colostomy after robotic prostatectomy, moderated by Dr. Christopher P. Evans. He'll introduce his faculty. Um, just one quick uh, thing before we get started. I wanted to stress that all of these cases are fictional. They've been created by our physician moderators and panelists and are designed to be realistic in terms of the medical information presented, but they do not portray actual patients or litigation. Please remember all of our panelists are playing parts, despite the fact that we are using their real names for simplicity. Uh, what they say here today is designed to fit the cases and not to provide insights into their personal beliefs or practices. <clears throat> Second, while we've tried to make the cases as realistic as possible from the medical perspective, we are taking some license on the legal side. In each case, you'll hear from the defendant, the plaintiff's expert witness, and the defense expert witness. You'll only hear the highlights, however, of the testimony, not the hours or days of testimony that will be presented at a real trial. We are assuming that all of the experts here are qualified to testify, um, and we won't um, therefore hear the litany of questions attorneys often ask about experience and expertise. And finally, we're focusing on clinical lessons, so there won't be too much courtroom drama, although I have a feeling there might be a little bit from our esteemed panel today. Um, finally, I'm really here primarily to keep everybody on time, so I won't be delivering any verdicts on these cases, despite my frustrated sense of wanting to be a judge. Um, but I will make sure that the there is an opportunity at the end of each case for our attorneys to share their perspectives on the case, and on medical liability litigation generally. Um, so with that being said, um, I'd, like, I, I'd like to give this over to Dr. Evans uh, to present the first case. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome. This first case is a case of a colostomy after a robotic prostatectomy. It's an operation performed by this man, Dr. Alejandro Rodriguez, a urologist at Samaritan Hospital in upstate New York. He's going to rely heavily on the strong defense of this gentleman, Dr. Christopher Kane from UC San Diego, but he will have to withstand the heavy interrogation of that gentleman, Dr. Jerry Andriol and his team, who will be the plaintiff expert witness. And so with that, we'll begin with our case. 
The patient we're going to talk about today is a 63-year-old man who had an elevated PSA but no nodules. His urologist saw him. He had a PSA of 4.83, and he rechecked it three months later, and it was 6.09, and this led to a 12-core biopsy shown here. He had Gleason score 9 in the left base, 4 plus 3 in the left mid uh, and lateral base, some 3 plus 3, and some Gleason 4 plus 4 in the right base. He had one other benign core. He appropriately underwent a staging workup with CT and nuclear medicine bone scan, which were uh, negative. He had an AUA symptom score of 18 and a shim of 13. He was in general quite healthy with some hyperlipidemia and some spine issues. Uh, he had a corneal transplant, but he does have a family history of prostate cancer with his father. In Dr. Rodriguez's office, he was counseled on all the options, including radiotherapy with two years of angine deprivation, but he elected for nerve-sparing robotic radical prostatectomy with a pelvic lymph node dissection, which was performed in July of 2015. He was counseled on the risk of nerve-sparing in a high-risk high disease setting. The consent was thorough for complications to include rectal injury. After the operation, the patient had a pathology of a PT3B, so involving the seminal vesicles, N0, and R1. He had a one centimeter positive margin at the left base. That's where the Gleason 9 tumor was. His postoperative course, uncomplicated, discharged home on day one with a Foley catheter. But after a full day of gardening on day three postoperatively, he had some abdominal pain and went to a local emergency room. He was afebrile at that visit with a normal white blood count. He did have a CT scan which showed free air in the abdomen and he was transferred to a major medical center. Here is his CT scan from the emergency room showing the free air uh, up around the level of the liver and the stomach and the anterior abdominal wall. And down at the level of the rectum, you can see the Foley catheter and just between the rectum uh, and the uh, anastomosis, there is free air as well. On postoperative day number three, both the urologic surgeon and trauma surgeons performed an exploratory laparotomy, irrigated and drained the pelvis, mobilized the omentum from the splenic flexure of the colon, and brought it down and put the omentum as an inner position between the rectum and the uh, urethral anastomosis. At that time, it was elected not to take down the urethral anastomosis in order to avoid uh, an increased chance of having postoperative incontinence. He was discharged home three days later. Here is his ensuing course. On postoperative day number 12, he had a persistent rectovesicle fistula on the cystogram, and bilateral percutaneous nephrostomy tubes were placed. He had diarrhea, and six months later, the diarrhea was still uh, there, but had decreased while he had been completely diverted with the nephrostomy tubes and still had the Foley catheter. However, with this lack of primary healing, he underwent a York-Mason fistula repair and urethroplasty with a gracilis flap in April of 2016, from which he had an uneventful recovery, and two months later in July, underwent a colostomy takedown with an end-to-end -end anastomosis. This is a video of part of his operation at the apex. As you notice, Dr. Rodriguez has very steady hands.
TV is cutting crazy. I mean, what's he doing there? I can't even watch. So bad. <laughs> That's the area of the injury on the cystogram. Here's the post-operative PSA course in November 2015 and February 2016. It was undetectable, but 10 months after surgery in May, it became detectable at 0.1, remained that in July, and then began to increase in October 0.17 and in January 0.2. The patient was continent, wore no pads, and was getting uh, erect functional erections using a PD-5 inhibitor. So, at this time, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Alejandro Rodriguez. Would you please take the stand? I guess that's your line. It felt good. <laughs> okay. What's that? Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon, members of the jury. Dr. Rodriguez, uh, you treated Mr. Sam Jones in your practice, is that correct? Yes, Mr. Jones was referred by his primary care physician in November 2014 with an elevated PSA at 4.83. Did Mr. Jones remain in your care after November of 2014? Yes, he continued in my care and in February 2015 another PSA showed a higher PSA of 6.09. At that point, we conducted a 12-core uh, prostate biopsy that you can see in slide 11. Results showed uh, four positive biopsies out of 12 with the highest Gleason score at nine, four plus five. After staging, his prostate cancer was classified as a clinical T1C N0M0. These results showed that Mr. Jones, according to NCC guidelines, had a, a high-risk prostate cancer. How did you proceed with Mr. Jones's treatment after your diagnosis? Well, Mr. Jones is a 63-year-old man with a life expectancy uh, greater than five years. So uh, I considered and discussed with Mr. Jones a range of treatment options, including external beam radiation therapy with androgen deprivation therapy or external beam radiation therapy plus brachytherapy with or without androgen deprivation therapy. In either of the cases, uh, the androgen deprivation therapy would have been uh, given for two to three years. We also discussed uh, a third option, which was a radical prostatectomy plus uh, extended pelvic lymph node dissections. How did you present these treatment options to Mr. Jones? We discussed in full details the pros and cons of each of these options. The patient consulted with a radiation and medical oncologist also, and eventually Mr. Jones made the informed cons uh, decision to actually uh, undergo a radical prostatectomy. What happened next? Once Mr. Jones elected surgery, uh, we discussed various alternative surgical approaches and techniques, again, uh, laying out the pros and cons of each. Mr. Jones opted for robotic-assisted radical prostatectomy and pelvic nymphoid dissection. It's worth noting that the patient elected to have bilateral nerve sparing a robotic assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy, even though he informed him, we informed him that attempting to preserve the nerves bilaterally 
increase the chance of him having a positive margin, which at the same time will also uh, have an increased risk of requiring additional therapy after surgery, such as adjuvant or salvage radiation therapy. Did you explain the risks of a uh, robotic-assisted radical prostatectomy to Mr. Jones? Yes, prior to the surgery, we explained the consent form in full detail, and the consent form notes the adverse events of other complications that could also occur during and after surgery. Was rectal or bowel injury one of the stated risks? Yes, rectal and bowel injury requiring fecal diversion or primary repair was in the list of known risks. And Mr. Jones signed the consent form uh, for the prostatectomy, indicating that he was aware of and accepted these known risks. Is that correct? Yes, uh, he signed the consent form. That's right. And after he signed the consent form, what happened next? So in July 2015, I performed a uh, robotic-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy and pelvic lymph node dissection on Mr. Jones. The procedure went well. There were no problems that my team or I could see. There was minimal blood loss. We performed a bilateral nerve-sparing procedure with minimal cautery used since Mr. Jones clearly wanted sexual function and continence preserved. We tested anastomosis for leaks by placing 250 cc's of normal saline. There were no leaks. And how did Mr. Jones feel immediately after the surgery? Just one day after surgery, he was feeling well. Drain output was minimal, and the Foley catheter we had inserted during the procedure was draining clear urine. Mr. Jones was tolerating regular diet, he was ambulating, and his pain was controlled with PO pain medications. We removed the drain and Mr. Jones requested to go home and we agreed on this. And uh, did you give Mr. Jones any discharge instructions? Yes, uh, we sent him home with antibiotics and pain medications, uh, plus a stool softener and a folate catheter to gravity. We asked him to come to the clinic for a follow-up in seven days. Uh, did he actually return uh, prior to the seven days? Well, yes, uh, he went initially to his local hospital's emergency department three days after surgery because he was experiencing abdominal pain and an extended abdomen. His vital signs were stable and he had no fever, but a CT scan showed free air in his abdomen. He was transferred to our medical center. Uh, what happened to Mr. Jones uh, at the time he was transferred to your center? After seeing the CT scan and examining him, we suspected a possible colorectal or bowel injury, so we consented Mr. Jones for an exploratory laparotomy. I scrubbed in with a trauma surgeon on call. We found foul-smelling fluid in the pelvis. Since there was no obvious intra-abdominal GI injury during the exploration, we suspected of a delayed rectal injury. We then performed irrigation, drainage, mobilization of the omentum and splenic flexure of the colon, and finally we performed a diverting and colostomy. Did you attempt to make a primary repair during the procedure? No, we elected not to disturb the anastomosis to do a primary repair. Why did you make that decision? We hoped that diverting, the, uh, diverting with an end colostomy would give the rectal injury a chance to heal on its own thus avoiding the need for an osteomotic takedown, which could have led the urinary incontinence to, which could have led to urinary incontinence or other complications. And what happened next, Dr. Rodriguez? Well, the patient was discharged on post-op day number six, uh, but a cystogram on post-op day number 12 showed a persistent rectal vesicle fistula. We treated it using uh, bilateral percutaneous nephrostomy tubes in the hopes that the fistula could close on its own. 
However, on April 2016, a CT scan showed a persistent fistula, so we obtained Mr. Jones' consent for a York Mason fistula repair plus urethroplasty with a gracilis flap. And how did Mr. Jones recover from this procedure? Very well. We, are, we were able to perform a colostomy takedown and an end-to-end -end anastomosis in July of 2016. How is Mr. Jones' health today? He has fully recovered from the surgeries. He is continent without the use of pads, and he can achieve erections with the help of phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors. Unfortunately, his PSA has been increasing from less than 0.1 in November of 2015 to 0.1 in July of 2016, 12 months after his robotic-assisted procedure, to 0.17 in October 2016, and most recently to 0.2 in January of 2017. And what does that rising PSA indicate? It seems that Mr. Jones is experiencing what we call a biochemical recurrence of cancer. This always is a risk with high-risk prostate cancer patients, and it was one of the reasons I was concerned when Mr. Jones insisted on we performing the nurse-sparing approach for the robotic-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy. Mr. Jones' most recent PSA was at 0.2, which is not insignificant. We have been monitoring his PSA very close, and now that Mr. Jones has recovered full continent and sexual function, we have recommended salvage radiation therapy. I believe he has consented for this, and salvage XRT will begin later this month. Thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. I have no further questions. Uh, Mr. Dopp, I'm sure, has some questions for you. Sir, you'd agree, wouldn't you, that the volume of robotic radical prostatectomy cases performed by both the individual surgeon and at the institution as a whole may be relevant to the outcome of these surgeries, correct? I would say that the surgeon's experience in performing radical prostatectomies may affect outcomes, though it's certainly not the only factor. Volume can be a rough proxy for surgical experience to a point but it's certainly not the case that the surgeons with the highest volume of cases is always the best surgeon. But in general, sir, a surgeon or institution's experience, including the number of surgeries performed, is in fact relevant to surgical outcomes. Yes, in some respect. And numerous studies have talked about the so-called learning curve associated with robotic radical prostatectomies, true? Yes, there are many studies to take into consideration regarding learning curves to a certain point. There are learning curves for everything in life, even when performing surgery, and especially in surgery. However, every patient with prostate cancer, as well as every prostate specimen with cancer, is different. Having said this, every surgeon also is different. There are surgeons that always did open surgery and all of a sudden perform robotic radical prostatectomies. Others perform laparoscopy and now are doing robotic surgery. And others were just born as surgeons when the robotic radical prostatectomy technique was completely mature. Some are pioneers. Others are mentored or, and guided, and others are just natural robotic surgeons that were trained when the technique was completely mature. An educated guess 
would be that pioneers would have the greatest experience, but possibly ones that had the most complications during their first series of cases and with the longest learning curves. To summarize, learning curves involve multiple variables and are endless. Judge moved to strike. That answer was not responsive to the question. The question could have been answered yes, no, or I can't answer yes to no. Move to strike. You're overruled, Mr. Doff. How many RALPs, sir, have you performed in your career? Approximately 600 cases. And how many RALPs are performed each year at your medical center? I would say several hundreds. Sir, when you perform the biopsy on Mr. Jones following, his second elevated PSA screen, did you also order an MRI? No, I did not. You did not. And yet, aren't MRIs increasingly being used to guide diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer, particularly when it comes to making decisions about a nerve-sparing approach? MRIs can be a useful tool but primarily in cases where it is hard to determine the stage of the patient's cancer. In Mr. Jones' case, the biopsy clearly showed a clinical T1CN0M0 uh, and a high-risk prostate cancer. And as I said, I recommend it against the nerve-sparing approach. Sir, are rectal injuries a common occurrence in RALP surgery? No. I w wouldn't call them common, but they are a known risk. Aren't they quite rare? They're not common, but a known risk nonetheless. And aren't most rectal injuries that do occur repaired or repaired intraoperatively during the RALP? No rectal injury was detectable during the robotic-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy, so there was no opportunity for intraoperative repair. Sir, I take it that you're familiar with an article by Professor Emil Ketterpal and colleagues, one of the great urologists of the world, and published in Urology in April of 2011, which reviewed 4,400 patients who underwent robotic radical prostatectomy. You have familiar familiarity, sir? I have some familiarity with that article, yes. And their review showed rectal injuries in only in only 10 <coughs> out of 4,400. Is that correct? I don't recall specifically, but I will take your word for that. Thank you, sir. If you take my word for that, 10 out of 4,400 is a rare occurrence, true? Again, I don't recall. All right, continuing. And they found that in every one of those 10 cases, rectal injuries were detected and repaired intraoperatively, correct? As I said, I don't recall. Do you, do you need to see a copy of the article, doctor, to refresh your memory? No, I will take your word for it. But you didn't detect any rectal injury during the RALP that you performed on Mr. Jones? That's completely right. And when Mr. Jones came back to you three days after surgery, I suspected a delayed rectal injury that was not present during the original surgery. 
Sir, was adjuvant radiation therapy part of your initial treatment plan for Mr. Jones? Once we informed him about the final pathology specimen results, which were PT3B N0MXR1, we explained Mr. Jones again very clearly and in full detail about the two options for radiation therapy after surgery. The first included adjuvant radiation therapy and the second was salvage radiation therapy. The pros and cons of each type of radiation therapy after surgery were discussed once again and the patient was interested in recovering sexual function and continence prior to any additional therapy. And sir, your patient, Mr. Jones, your patient, his PSA scores have risen twice, twice since your surgery, correct? Yes. And this is likely evidence of a biochemical recurrence of Mr. Jones' cancer. True? It is not definite at this point, but I would say likely yes. And in simple terminology for our jurors, you wouldn't want that in your body, correct? Correct. <laughs> okay, moving on. And this is likely evidence of a biochemical recurrence? It's impossible to say. Okay. If he had if he had received radiation therapy immediately after the RALP, would he be experiencing this recurrence today? It's impossible to say. Thank you, sir. Mr. Cassidy, if you'd like to call your next witness. I believe the next witness is Mr. Oh. Doff. Oh, I'm yes. so sorry. Mr. Doff, if you would like to uh, call your first witness. Thanks a lot. You were great. Please. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. You have had the opportunity to review all of the relevant medical records and to come to a good understanding of Mr. Jones' history, correct? Yes, I have. Relating to his robotic radical prostatectomy, the complications, and the surgery, true? That is correct, sir. And in your review, did you see any reason to doubt the defendant's qualifications to perform this procedure? Well, I mean, it's a serious question whether Dr. Rodriguez has performed a sufficient number of robotic prostatectomies so that navigating a complex procedure such as this one is truly second nature. Would you elaborate or explain for us why the number of robotic prostatectomies performed can make a difference in patient outcome? Well, according to a comprehensive literature review published in European Urology in 2013, there is very strong evidence to suggest that the higher the surgeons and the hospital's volume of radical prostatectomies, the better are the outcomes from those surgeries. There was another study published in the British Journal of Urology in 2010 that estimated that the learning curve for significantly reducing complications occurs at about 150 robotic prostatectomies. However, there are other authorities who have pegged that number as substantially higher. And for our jurors, would you just explain in a sentence or so, what is a learning curve? Well, it's, it's the uh, incremental uh, amount of uh, extra skill that a practitioner gets as he or she performs additional uh, procedures. 
Dr. Rodriguez has performed about 600 of these procedures, so his experience does exceed the learning curve that you spoke of. You know, some would self-servingly uh, say that, but there are other authorities who suggest that more than a thousand cases are necessary to truly get past the steep portion of the learning curve. I'm not saying that Dr. Rodriguez was unqualified to perform this procedure. I'm only saying that he may not have performed as many of these procedures as some of the high-volume surgeons that we have in our field, and studies clearly show that high volume is associated with better outcomes. And did the patient have the right to know that information before signing the informed consent, sir? I believe so. Are you troubled by any aspects of the way the defendant handled the case before surgery? Uh, I believe strongly that he should have obtained an MRI prior to surgery. <clears throat> Slowly and distinctly, Explain to our jurors why the basis for your opinion, sir. An MRI, in my view, may have reduced the likelihood of either a positive margin or a rectal injury or both. For example, there was a study published in the Journal of Urology in 2013 that indicated that the positive predictive value of an MRI for extraprostatic disease was about 90%. If Dr. Rodriguez had ordered an MRI on Mr. Jones, he would have had a better idea of the full extent of Mr. Jones's disease, which would have informed the decision to perform a non-nerve-sparing prostatectomy or to consider other approaches, such as hormonal therapy to potentially downsize the tumor preoperatively or even to use radiation therapy instead. And, sir, moving on to the defendant's performance of the RALP, what can you tell us about the occurrence of rectal injuries associated with robotic radical prostatectomies? They are exceedingly rare. They occur in only 0.3 to 0.5 percent of uh, robotic cases. Essentially, a rectal injury should be a never event. Sir, for our jurors, explain what is a never event. Something that we in the healthcare system should strive to avoid at all costs. Operating on the wrong limb is a never event, correct? Yes, sir. I asked the defendant if he was familiar with a particular article published in Urology in April of 2011. Could you tell us about that article, Dr. Andriel? Yes, sir. Um, that article reviewed a series of uh, about 4,400 radical prostatectomy cases. It supports the statement I made about rectal injuries being an exceedingly rare occurrence. Uh, they occurred in about 0.2% of those 4,400 cases. Anything else of significance to our jurors in that article? Yes. Uh, in each of the cases where the rectal injury occurred, it was noted and repaired intraoperatively. Are you saying in simple terms to our jurors that virtually every other surgeon who experienced a rectal injury sought and fixed it during the surgery? A rectal injury is very, very rare. Not recognizing a rectal injury is additionally a very rare occurrence. 
So in your opinion, Dr. Andriel, Dr. Rodriguez, the defendant's failure to identify and repair Mr. Jones' rectal injury intraoperatively fell below the standard of care. Sadly, I believe it did. I also believe he compounded these errors and, and the risk to Mr. Jones when he performed the emergency laparotomy based on suspicion of a rectal injury and wound up performing only a diverting end colostomy without primarily repairing the rectal injury. What should he have done? Again, I believe the standard of care dictates that Dr. Rodriguez should have performed an anastomotic takedown and directly repaired the rectal injury. That way, this second surgical procedure was much more likely to be definitive and the patient could go on to receive in an earlier time frame the additional therapy we now know he needs. We know that Mr. Jones eventually required a third surgery in order to repair the rectovesical fistula. Now, just for a moment, sir, would you explain to our jurors what is a rectovesical fistula in terms we might understand? It's a connection between the fecal stream and the urinary stream. Something no one would want. True? I agree with that statement. In your opinion, beyond the need for the third procedure, were there any other negative consequences associated with the defendant's failure to identify and repair the rectal injury at the time of surgery? Yes, I think the unrecognized rectal injury itself and then the additional surgeries, in plural, required to repair it significantly delayed Mr. Jones' ability to receive the radiation therapy he needed after his radical prostatectomy, and that reduces his chance of cure. And as a general proposition, we never want to delay radiation treatment, if at all possible, correct? I agree, sir. All right. In terms of the issue of the, of the delay, tell us why it's a concern. Well, uh, the American Society for Radiation Oncology and the American Urological Association issued a guideline on adjuvant and salvage radiation therapy after prostatectomy uh, for patients uh, who have adverse pathological findings such as positive margins, extracapsular extension. And um, this uh, early uh, administration of this uh, adjuvant radiation therapy it reduces the risk of a biochemical recurrence, of local clinically detectable currents, and of uh, other uh, clinical manifestations of recurrent disease. So in this case, based on these guidelines, Mr. Jones should have been offered adjuvant radiation therapy as soon as possible, but that could not occur because of the unrecognized, unrepaired rectal injury. Well, when should the adjuvant radio radiotherapy been offered? Well, as soon as possible after the robotic prostatectomy, usually within four to six months of surgery. And what about when Mr. Jones' PSA levels began to rise? Well, at that point, the radiation therapy would be referred to as salvage radiation therapy. There is evidence that patients do better if the salvage radiation therapy occurs at the very first sign of a PSA rise. In Mr. Jones's case, that would have been in May of 2016. But again, therapy was delayed because Mr. Jones was still recovering from the surgery he had in April of 2016 to repair the uh, rectovesical fistula. And sir, do you have an opinion with a reasonable degree of medical certainty or probability as to whether administering 
the XRT either immediately after the surgical procedure or at the point when the patient's PSA level started to rise would have prevented the biochemical recurrences of Mr. Jones' cancer? Well, it's impossible to say for sure. But uh, I believe that administering radiation therapy earlier certainly could have made a significant difference in avoiding the biochemical recurrence that he later uh, experienced and improving uh, Mr. Jones's overall prognosis. Nothing further. Thank you very much. Doctor, you're not telling this jury that Dr. Rodriguez did not have uh, the proper education and training to perform this procedure, are you? No, I'm not questioning his training. And you're not suggesting to this jury that he has little or no experience in performing this type of uh, radical robotic prostatectomy, correct? I'm not saying that there are others who have more experience, however. Mm -hmm. Well, doctor, there's always somebody who has more experience, correct? And there's quite a few. And, doctor, are there people who have more experience than you? Uh, probably. Right. And does that mean you shouldn't perform the surgery? No, sir. Now, <laughs> you talked about high-volume surgeons, doctor. Do you recall that? Yes, sir. Okay. And you can't say, doctor, that high-volume surgeons don't experience uh, complications, correct? You know, I have never said that volume is a guarantee of a good outcome. Right. Only right. And you that certainly, it tends to be a good predictor of a good outcome. You certainly didn't mean to imply that earlier to this jury, did you? That is, that volume is a guarantee of outcome? No, sir, I did not want to imply that. Okay. And you've never said that, have you? No. Okay. And so, doctor, you would agree that even the most qualified and experienced surgeons who have patients who experience bad outcomes from time to time, correct? That's true. Okay. Now, <clears throat> let's talk for a moment uh, about the MRI in this case, doctor. Uh, having had an MRI would not have changed the staging of Mr. Jones's cancer, correct? Uh, I think that's impossible to say. Based on the biopsy, he was clearly a high-risk patient for locally advanced disease. And my feeling is that any additional information about the anatomy of the prostate and the pelvis and the extent of the disease could only help the surgeon who is performing a radical prostatectomy do a better job. Okay, and now let's try my question, doctor. Would you agree that having had the MRI would not change the stage of the patient's cancer? I'm not sure. Doctor, you would agree that uh, Dr. Rodriguez advised Mr. Jones not to have the nerve-sparing uh, radical prostatectomy, correct? Yes. Okay. In other words, he advised Mr. Jones uh, that he should have the more uh, invasive, if you will, procedure, the procedure that was going to uh, affect, for example, his sexual function, correct? Yes. And you know that uh, Mr. Jones' sexual function was very important to him, correct? Uh, apparently it was. But on the other hand, many times I have found that if I have an MRI uh, and I'm sitting down with the patient and his significant others, I can explain that we have three goals when we're performing a radical prostatectomy. <coughs> we want to cure the patient, we want to preserve his urinary, and we want to preserve his sexual function. Mm -hmm. I can point to them and say that sometimes the goal of cure is best achieved by compromising the third goal of sexual function. And doctors, sometimes, even with that knowledge, patients elect to have the nerve-sparing procedure, correct? 
Not that often. Uh, many times the patient and their significant others who have uh, been informed of the findings have been supportive of nerve resection uh, after uh, conversation. Okay, and doctor, once again my question, not most of the time, but some of the time, patients having had that discussion elect to have the nerve sparing procedure, correct? That is true. Right, and in fact, you know that Mr. Jones uh, elected to have the nerve sparing procedure, correct? Yes, but he wasn't explained uh, as aggressively, perhaps, as he could have been, the risks of it. Mm -hmm. Were you in the room? No. Um, an MRI wouldn't have changed the course of treatment in the case, would it? Hard to say. Well, I think you have a little more there. Well, we're in the room. I don't know where we are. <laughs> Um, you've testified that a rectal injury, yes, uh, but it's one of the risks, yes, it's listed here. Okay, all right, we'll just pick it up. Yeah. Um, would you agree, doctor, that it's sheer speculation as to whether an MRI uh, would or would not have convinced Mr. Jones to forego a nerve-sparing procedure? Yes, that's true. Okay. Um, You've testified that the occurrence of rectal injury during a robotic radical prostatectomy is practically a quote-unquote never event, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. And, doctor, practically a never event doesn't make it a literally never event, correct? Yes. And I think you've told us, doctor, that the uh, occurrence rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 0.03 to 0.05? Yes, sir. And you'd also agree, doctor, that uh, one can never predict in advance uh, when this type of complication is going to occur, correct? Well, you might infer that from an MRI. Mm -hmm. And you might not, correct? True. Now, you would agree, doctor, that the fact that a complication occurs, and in this case the complication of a rectal injury, that does not in and of itself mean that the operating surgeon departed from the standard of care, correct? Or made an error? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, you would agree, doctor, uh, that patients with advanced disease or who have had prior treatments such as cryoablation or radiation therapy are at very high risk of rectal injury? Yes, they are. And there are certain times, doctors, in certain situations, uh, even though they might be uncommon, that such a rectal injury can go undetected during the course of a radical robotic prostatectomy. As I said, uh, uh, that is an even more uncommon occurrence than the very uncommon occurrence of a rectal injury itself. Mm -hmm. But it does occur, correct, doctor? It can. Right. Now, you were not in the operating room. You've already told us you weren't in the office when they were discussing the, the consent, doctor. You also were not in the operating room at the time of the procedure, correct? No, sir, I wasn't. So you have no firsthand knowledge as to uh, what caused the patient's rectal injury or whether Dr. Rodriguez could have detected it and repaired it intraoperatively. True? No, sir, but... I think I can offer an opinion based on my years of experience performing these surgeries and based upon my review of the literature. 
but not, doctor, based on firsthand knowledge in this case, in Mr. Jones's case. Uh, that's true. Now, with regard to Dr. Rodriguez's decision not to perform an anastomotic takedown during the exploratory laparotomy, isn't it true, doctor, that some rectal injuries heal with colostomies and do not require additional treatment? Uh, yes, that's true in a minority of cases. And anastomotic takedown carries its own risks, correct, including the risk of incontinence. Yes, uh, but that risk and, and the, is probably less than the risks of an untreated rectovesical fistula in terms of the potential for serious infections and, more importantly, for the delay of a necessary curative intervention such as radiation. Right, and that is why Dr. Rodriguez closely monitored Mr. Jones after the colostomy to see if the rectal injury had healed or if any other complications had occurred, correct? I agree that there was some ongoing monitoring. And when it became apparent, doctor, that the fistula had not healed, Dr. Rodriguez performed a York Mason fistula repair, correct? Yes, sir. Do you have any criticisms or problems, doctor, with Dr. Rodriguez's performance of that repair? No, uh, it appears to have been uneventful and uh, a little late. Okay. Well, doctor, you weren't there treating the patient, correct? No, sir. And it's sure easy to sit here in hindsight and say what should or shouldn't have happened, isn't it? Uh, sometimes, but that video was pretty scary. Mm -hmm. Doctor, you weren't there in the, in the OR? No, sir. Okay. And all you've done, doctor, is reviewed the records and the materials in this case, correct? Yes, sir. And received some payment from Mr. Dopp for your time, correct? Uh, probably less than uh, my counterpart has. Uh -huh. And what would possibly be the basis for that statement, Mr. doctor? Cassidy? I'm just a small-town guy from the Midwest. He's a highfalutin, uh, West Coast, California doctor. Uh, they have a higher Mr. cost Cassidy, of living. Mr. Cassidy, I believe you've made your point. If you could please move on. Thank you. And uh, that's how you want to leave it with the jury, doctor? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Mr. Cassidy, if you'd like to call your uh, expert witness at this time. Uh, yes, Dr. Christopher Kane, please. Uh, doctor, let's start, if we may, uh, by talking about Dr. Rodriguez's care uh, of Mr. Jones preoperatively. Um, Dr. Rodriguez diagnosed Mr. Jones as a high-risk prostate cancer patient based on the Gleason score of 9, 4 plus 5, and other factors. Do you agree with that diagnosis, doctor? Yes, I do. The care and assessment uh, risk stratification were exactly appropriate. He met the definition of high-risk prostate cancer by any of our modern definitions. Okay. And, and by the way, doctor, do you consider yourself to be a highfalutin California doctor? I don't. I'm a careful and thoughtful reviewer of, uh, of data, unlike Dr. Andriel appears to be. Do you, do, you agree, do you agree, doctor, 
that the radical prostatectomy and uh, PLND was the best course of treatment for Mr. Jones? Yes, there's many forms of appropriate treatment for Mr. Jones, uh, the most common being a radical prostatectomy and node dissection, as uh, was recommended and he received in this case. <laughs> he could be treated with other methods, such as radiation therapy in combination with androgen deprivation therapy, but radical prostatectomy was a very appropriate uh, treatment recommendation. You heard uh, Dr. Andrew <coughs> Andrelay testify that Dr. Rodriguez should have ordered an MRI for the patient prior to the surgery. Do you agree with that statement, doctor? No, I don't. An and MRI pre-op is not part of our uh, guidelines currently, NCCN or AUA or SUO guidelines. It is preferred by some surgeons, so uh, it, it's not outside the standard of care to uh, perform a preoperative MRI, but it is far from the standard of care. So obtaining an MRI before surgery in this case was not the standard of care. Is that what you're saying, doctor? Objection leading. Yes, that's correct. Overruled. Now, in terms of the radical prostatectomy itself, doctor, do you have an opinion with respect to whether Dr. Rodriguez was sufficiently qualified to perform that procedure? I believe he's eminently qualified. He has the uh, prerequisite medical and clinical training. He's performed more than enough radical prostatectomies to establish himself as an experienced surgeon. I'd go as far as to say he's an expert surgeon. Does the fact that Mr. Jones experienced a rectal injury indicate that Dr. Rodriguez failed to meet the standard of care in performing uh, the uh, procedures, the uh, prostatectomy and the PLND? No, not at all. Dr. Rodriguez appropriately warned Mr. Jones of the risk of rectal injury, among other risks, when he had obtained informed consent for the radical prostatectomy. Although rectal injuries are rare, they can have potentially serious complications and adverse events. They can occur with the best trained, most experienced, and careful and competent surgeons. So occurrence of a rectal injury by itself does not imply malpractice. Also, Dr. Andriol's incidence information is quite selective. In the largest series comparing various approaches to radical prostatectomy, the incidence of rectal injuries from 0.4 to 1% of cases. And so higher than the numbers that uh, were quoted earlier, correct? Yes, the incidence information he quoted is the lowest in the literature. Okay. Now, uh, you've also heard him testify that rectal injuries are virtually always repaired intraoperatively, and so the fact that Mr. Jones's injury was not repaired during the procedure intraoperatively falls below the standard of care. Do you agree with him on that? No, I think it's an overgeneralization. If there was evidence that Dr. Rodriguez had seen the rectal injury during the radical prostatectomy and failed to address it, then I would be concerned but there's virtually no evidence in the OR notes or any other portions of the medical record that the rectal injury was present or identifiable intraoperatively. So there's no evidence that Dr. Rodriguez could have or should have done anything differently. He could hardly have repaired an injury that was not just undetected, but unidentifiable during the initial surgery. And doctor, moving along to the postoperative care, uh, do you have an opinion as to Dr. Rodriguez's care of Mr. Jones when Mr. Jones returned several days after the radical prostatectomy complaining of abdominal pain and with other symptoms uh, indicating a rectal or bowel injury? Again, I think Dr. Rodriguez acted appropriately. 
Actually, I'd say he even uh, treated him excellently. He was very prompt in the assessment in the emergency room and transitioning to, to his appropriate care. The emergency laparotomy was clearly the right call. And, Doctor, do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to whether Dr. Rodriguez's decision not to take down the anastomosis during the laparotomy uh, in order to do a primary repair, whether that was appropriate? It's a very difficult decision, as neither option, leaving the anastomosis undisturbed, as Dr. Rodriguez chose to do, or taking it down to do a primary repair is without risk. I've seen different competent surgeons competent, experienced surgeons make different decisions in these circumstances with mixed results. Ultimately, it's a judgment call, but it's clearly not outside the standard of care to give a rectal injury a chance to heal with diversion, even knowing that the patient may require a secondary repair at a later date. Uh, doctor, uh, you've heard it be suggested that this, that this decision by Dr. Rodriguez uh, was a particularly poor decision uh, where the patient may have needed adjuvant or salvage uh, radiation therapy and that the opportunity to re receive that therapy was unduly delayed by the colostomy and subsequent surgery to repair the recto-vesicle uh, fistula. Do you agree with that? I do not. Why not? When Dr. Rodriguez performed the diverting end colostomy and elected not to disrupt the anastomosis in order to do a primary repair, Mr. Jones's PSA was non-existent. It was undetectable. And the same was true at the PSA test performed in February 2016, just two months before Dr. Rodriguez performed the York-Mason fistula repair. There's simply no evidence that waiting and giving the fistula a chance to heal delayed or jeopardized appropriate care for Mr. Jones's prostate cancer. And certainly, Dr. Rodriguez could not have foreseen the biochemical recurrence at the time that he made that decision. Have there been any developments that support Dr. Rodriguez's attempt to wait and allow the fistula to heal on its own? Yes, Mr. Jones is currently continent, even after his repair in April 2016. I would say that that long-term effect of the injury likely was minimized by Dr. Rodriguez's good decision to avoid the anastomotic takedown, which may have led to lifelong urinary incontinence. So there's at least a fair chance that Mr. Jones's quality of life would be compromised by incontinence today if Dr. Rodriguez had followed the course touted by the plaintiff's expert as the best option. Thank you, Dr. Kane. <coughs> Sir, I take it that you don't like being characterized as slick. Fair statement? Of course. And is that because you are slick, sir? <laughs> Mr. Doff, if you could please move it along, sir. Yes, Judge. Sir, there are rules in the operating room, are there not? There are. And you obey those rules, do you not? I do. And you, sir, are no stranger to the courtroom having testified for defendant urologists many, many times. True? Yes. And, sir, you know then that there are rules in the courtroom also, correct? Yes. I'm going to ask you, sir, then to answer my questions yes or no, or I can't answer them yes or no. Fair enough, sir? Yes. Okay. You and the defendant, Rodriguez, belong to a very exclusive club, 
the AUA, correct? Are you both club members, sir? Yes or no? Yes. And that's not the only club that you two belong to, meaning urology club, correct? You mean a professional association? Correct. Yes. All right, sir, let's move on to some of the issues. You stated that obtaining an MRI before surgery would not have hurt Mr. Jones' case, correct? You said that? Yes, but I also stated it wasn't necessary. Move to strike that part of the answer that is not responsive, Judge. So stricken. Could it have helped with the decision to perform a nerve-sparing RALP? Yes or no, sir? Possibly. And should not the patient have been given the benefit of a test where the only real downside is that it's noisy, should the patient have been given the benefit of a test that might possibly have helped him? Yes or no? No. The reason is... Sir, I didn't ask you the reason, but for the purpose of our college here, go and give us the reason that doing every test that could possibly make a difference would be, would be reckless. We do tests that have been shown to clearly make a difference. And when assessing guidelines and the value of various tests, we must use professional judgment as to what tests are likely to help and what tests are most appropriate. And in this setting, the MRI is not inside our guidelines and competent surgeons choose to do it preoperatively, and other competent surgeons, like Dr. Rodriguez, choose to omit it. And those guidelines are promulgated for the health and safety of the patients that come to physicians like you, correct? Yes. Those guidelines are wonderful guidelines that should always be adhered to, correct? Usually adhered to. We always have to take individual patient situations into consideration. You don't like answering yes or no. Is that the problem you have, sir? <laughs> These are complicated issues. All right. But it's possible that MI results might have helped the defendant better illustrate the risks of the nerve-sparing procedure to Mr. Jones. Possibly. And that's something that was owed to Mr. Jones, wasn't it? I believe it you've made this point, Mr. Doff. Please move along. All right. And you agree with Dr. Andriol that a rectal injury associated with a radical robotic prostatectomy is a rare complication? Yes, it's rare. Dr. Andriol used the term a never complication, and that is incorrect. Do you also agree that rectal injuries that do occur during an RALP are typically detected and repaired intraoperatively? Most are, but about a third of rectal injuries do present late and are not detected or detectable, perhaps, intraoperatively. And, sir, not being present at the surgery, you have no idea whether the rectal injury was evident and missed, correct? 
That's correct. So you are guessing for a sum of money in favor of one of your club members, correct? That's a misrepresentation. I'm making a judgment that an experienced surgeon, if he would have identified a rectal injury, as he stated in his testimony, he would have repaired it. But it's possible that he missed it, correct? It's possible. The rectal injury certainly was detectable during the exploratory laparotomy a few days after the RALP, true? Yes, that's right. And yet, the defendant chose not to repair the injury, performing a diverting end colostomy instead. Is that true? Yes, he hoped the injury would heal on its own with diversion. Does that kind of spontaneous closure happen in the majority of cases, sir? Well, there's not a lot of literature on, on the utility of spontaneous closure. It does happen in a few cases, but I can't quote you an authoritative percentage. Mr. Jones had been diagnosed with high-risk prostate cancer, correct? Yes. And the defendant had performed an RALP plus PLND with bilateral nerve sparing, true? Yes. And defendant told Mr. Jones that attempting to preserve the nerves bilaterally would increase the risk of having a positive margin after the RALP, correct? Yes. And the defendant explained to Mr. Jones that having a positive margin would mean that Mr. Jones would likely require adjuvant or salvage radiation therapy. Yes, I believe that was discussed. And yet, you don't think the defendant should have at least tried to repair the injury during the laparotomy, given the chance that Mr. Jones would require adjuvant or salvage XRT? Yet, knowing a persistent fistula or multiple surgeries to repair the injury would mean a delay in XRT. Dr. Rodriguez knew that Mr. Jones's PSA immediately after the radical prostatectomy had, followed, has, had fallen to an undetectable level, which is a good sign. He also knew he could monitor regularly for increases of PSA, which he did. And with a PSA remaining undetectable until about 10 months after the radical prostatectomy and a month after the York Mason fistula repair surgery. As I noted previously, reasonable, competent surgeons could make different choices but I don't see any basis for saying that Dr. Rodriguez failed to meet the standard of care with the choice that he made. Also, he could have used androgen deprivation therapy to allow a greater time interval to the initiation of radiation, so it was unlikely that the delay from injury to radiation is going to have an impact on his outcome. Also, Dr. Andriel implies that adjuvant radiation is the standard of care for patients with a positive margin. However, the more common strategy is actually early salvage radiation therapy after observing the PSA. And this strategy is also acceptable in the NCCN guidelines, again, not outside the standard of care. Thank you, sir. Nothing further. All right. Um, Mr. Doth, um, if you could give your uh, closing statement and make it very short. I'm trying to get home in time for dinner tonight, and I would appreciate brevity. All right, Judge. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what drove witness Kane to come into this sanctuary, this, this courthouse, this cathedral of justice, and give such testimony? What pressure? 
what lurked behind the scenes. When the defendant elected to do a robotic-assisted prostatectomy to deal with prostate cancer, Mr. Jones trusted the defendant. He trusted that the defendant had taken all appropriate steps to plan for the procedure. He trusted that the defendant had the skill to perform the procedure. And Mr. Jones trusted that the defendant would do everything possible to help him emerge from treatment cancer-free. But the defendant, Rodriguez, let Mr. Jones down, let Mr. Jones' family down. <coughs> Instead of the straightforward surgery he'd been expecting, Mr. Jones has been forced to deal with not one but three surgeries. He's been struggling to recover from those surgeries for months. And recently he has learned that this prolonged recovery may have cost him his best chance of defeating the prostate cancer that brought him to the defendant in the first place. Jurors, in our lives what we have is time. Time has been taken away because of the carelessness of the defendant. The defendant, Rodriguez, failed Mr. Jones not once, but over and over again. First, he should have obtained an MRI prior to performing the RALP. Why no MRI? To save the insurance company's money? The MRI, which could easily have been ordered, would have changed the course of Mr. Jones' treatment and life. Second, the defendant failed to detect and fix a rectal injury during the robotic surgery, something that, according to Dr. Andriol, almost never happens. The literature suggests that rectal injuries during RLPs are very rare, and failing to fix those injuries intraoperatively is even less common. So what went on in that operating room? What madness occurred during that robotic surgery? That Rodriguez could not see bowel contents right in front of his face. Was he in a rush for the next surgery? Let me continue. And finally, <clears throat> the defendant made matters worse by failing to repair the rectal injury during the exploratory laparotomy. He hoped the injury would close on its own, even though he knew the literature clearly indicated that the likelihood of that happening was close to zero. And even that witness, I think, from California agreed with that. But unfortunately, Mr. Jones' prognosis is uncertain. What's crystal clear is that the defendant's medical decisions failed to meet the standard of care and put Mr. Jones' recovery in jeopardy. Let me make something clear, jurors. Mr. Jones is not looking for sympathy. He is a victim of medical carelessness or negligence. His life and ability to enjoy life 
is now in grave jeopardy. He simply looks for justice. Thank you. Mr. Cassidy. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court, counsel, members of the jury. First of all, let me thank you for uh, the time that you've spent with us over the course of the last two weeks. Um, you've heard all of the evidence, and now is the time for you to decide the case. And what you just heard uh, from the plaintiff's attorney, although he just told you that he does not want your sympathy, has been nothing more than an overt appeal to your sympathy. This case is not about sympathy. There's no question that the patient suffered complications. And as we all know, complications occur with surgery. They occur in the hands of the best surgeons. I dare say even Dr. Andriol has had some complications during the course of his career, regardless of whether he's shaking his head. Um, now, the complications that occurred in this case, and before we get to the complications, let me just talk to you very briefly about the patient's election in this case. You've heard a lot about the fact that the patient elected a nerve-sparing prostatectomy. There should be no question, members of the jury, based upon the evidence that you've heard, that that was the patient's election after being provided with all of the material information. You heard from Dr. Rodriguez, they had a good, full, lengthy discussion, and Mr. Jones wanted to have a nerve-sparing procedure. Dr. Rodriguez is a well-trained, experienced, competent surgeon. It was suggested to you initially that he didn't have the experience or the qualification, uh, when in fact on cross-examination, Dr. Andriol conceded that he absolutely did have the qualifications and the experience to perform this surgery. And once again, the fact that complications occur does not mean that the surgeon did something wrong. If that were the case, I dare say uh, no one would be able to be a surgeon. The patient's complications were properly recognized. They were properly treated. They were conservatively and thoughtfully treated. And as you heard, the patient's condition today is very good. He is not incontinent. His condition uh, with respect to his cancer appears to be stable. And there is nothing that Dr. Rodriguez could have done or should have done uh, differently. So in deciding this case, members of the jury, the, the issue is not did the patient suffer a complication and do we feel badly about that. We wouldn't be here if that was the issue. The issue is did Dr. Rodriguez comply with the standard of care in his treatment of Mr. Jones? Did he have the proper discussion? Did Mr. Jones elect to have a nerve sparing procedure? And did Dr. Rodriguez respond correctly to the complications once they occurred. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, this concludes case one.